All right, how's everyone doing today? I think we're going to get rolling. Um, I'm Carl, your trusty moderator. And that basically means that I'm just going to introduce uh, the papers in succession. And I think we're going to take some about 20-minute papers and then take some time for Q&A after each paper. Um, does that sound good, panel? And if need be, I'll just, not even if need me, I'll just hit you with a five-minute warning just so you know about where you're at. All right. Um, this panel is called Mad Men, The Strange Politics of Transnational Technologies. And our first paper is presented by uh, Karen Tongson, Kar Karaoke Fascism, from Mark Osset to Hussein. Hussein. Okay. I'm going to actually go up here so that yeah, I, I can control good. the computer. Ooh. Thank you all for coming. I know that there's a lot of awesome stuff happening right now at the same time. I would also take, check it out if I weren't here uh, speaking to you right now. Okay. So a little over a decade ago, the Australian scholar Monique Skidmore published a book titled Karaoke Fascism, Burma and the Politics of Fear. And like several other big idea books of the last decade, with karaoke featured prominently in the title, Skidmore employs karaoke as a metaphor. For example, in 2011, the Croatian fiction writer Dubravka Jugrezic announced that we, and by this she meant the global we, live in a karaoke culture of ordinariness and ordinary people who, quote, within given codes shaped by technology and genre, are protected by the mask of anonymity and fulfill their suppressed desires within their own communities of fandom. Ugrezich spins her karaoke metaphor out to include aesthetic forms that we're used to discussing within the more dignified aesthetic terms of mimesis uh, or imitation, like film, literature, and art, before she informs us that in our internet age, these activities can no longer be called that, or, and we can no longer even have the concept of plagiarism because both concepts belong to a different time and a different cultural system. Before Ugrezich's bold claims about karaoke, on the precipice of the Great Recession in 2003, the Swedish economists Jonas Ritterstrahle and Kjell A. Nordstrom tried to promote what they called a karaoke capitalism, a method of systematically understanding a new economy of rampant individualism. Duduo declared that the choice is clear, this is what they said, in quotes. We can settle for singing someone else's lyrics to someone else's tempo and tune and try to break free from the sameness of songs already sung, copy, or create. Skidmore, who wrote Karaoke Fascism, also uses karaoke as a shorthand to describe what she calls the layers of conformity the Burmese people use as a survival, as a survival mechanism in response to oppression and domination by fascist military regimes in the late 20th century. Like Ugrezich and Ritterstrahle and Nordstrom, Skidmore's sense of karaoke is as a metaphor for derivation, despite only a passing knowledge of how actual karaoke functions within the cultural life worlds of Burma, or anywhere else for that matter. And so we might surmise that karaoke is the preferred post-millennial sign, the terrain upon which contemporary culture negotiates between originality and derivation or copying and emulation, 
in an aesthetic and political economy that's rendered the value of originality and authenticity more speculative, if not entirely bankrupt. Karaoke, in other words, has evolved from its role as an amusement uh, or pastime and has instead been enlisted as a metaphor for adjudication and mediation. And this is the first uh, karaoke machine, purportedly the first karaoke machine built uh, by Daisuke Inoue. Uh, it was called the Eight Juke. Uh, this from, was from 1972. Well, what about the coercive power of actual karaoke? Today, my presentation asks what it would mean to take a freakish, freakish political concept like karaoke fascism, literally, and to perform some materialist labor on the topic. More specifically, I want to explore the role actual karaoke has played in certain fascist regimes in Southeast Asia, particularly as part of Hun Sen's current dictatorial regime in Cambodia and in the Philippines during Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos's reign from 1965 until they were deposed by the People Power or EDSA revolution in 1986. Because cultural commentators like Hugh Grezich and the Swedish duo behind karaoke capitalism can only imagine karaoke as a symptom of excessive democratization, so too many amateurs who, and fans thinking they're doers after the opportunity to insert their voice over a pre-recorded track, these cultural observers fail to see how karaoke can actually function not only as part of the spectacle of coercive statecraft, but also as one of its tools or apparatuses. So I'm going to begin with a very brief contemporary example of karaoke as a, a techni technological apparatus of dictatorial rule in Hun Sen's Cambodia, where the former Khmer Rouge guerrilla fighter has held power for nearly 30 years since 1986, uh, since the Marcoses were deposed, coincidentally. Lots of ink has already been spilled about Hun Sen's karaoke videos and the team of karaoke composers and producers he employs on behalf of his regime, especially in mainstream news outlets like the New York Times. And uh, Julia Wallace, who is also the managing editor of the Cambodian Daily, had a really wonderful op-ed piece that kind of elaborated on Hun Sen's uh, use of karaoke as part of his regime in 2013, uh, January 2013. It's the most detailed account of it. So I'm not going to recapitulate too much of that information here. But I do want to point out that there are nearly 100 karaoke videos of original songs created by Hun Sen's in-house composer since the 1990s. And his in-house composer is named Hun Heng, no relation. Um, <clears throat> some of the karaoke videos which air regularly on the national network TVK at once explain and promote Hun Sen's policies and legislative victories and at least two songs that I'm aware of focus on a recent shift in subsistence fishing policies um, that deprivatized some fishing lots to make them brought, available to a broader array of subsistence fisher folk. And <clears throat> it's interesting because Hun Sen's karaoke composer for a period of time in the early 90s um, was writing songs for him. Before he was starting to really make the karaoke videos, he was writing songs for them uh, that were attributed to the dictator. Right? So there's this kind of fantasy that he was also a pop songwriter right? in his own right. But at a certain point, um, as the songs began to gain in popularity, they sort of dropped that whole charade. And, and Hun Hang became a personality in his own right. Um, other karaoke videos praise the virtues, beauty, and loyalty of Hun Sen's wife, Bun Rani, 
who spearheads numerous youth volunteer campaigns, and who's held up as a figure for Cambodian youth to emulate. And I'm going to show you a couple of brief clips here so you get a sense of um, what these videos look like. <coughs> so this is one of the subsistence fishing karaoke videos. And you'll see that, um, you know, there's this kind of idyllic representation of the rural countryside uh, in Cambodia, kind of, you know, the contributions of the folk, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll definitely let the song start. So, I mean, we won't be able, unless you read uh, in this language, you won't be able to understand the lyrics, but you'll see how it shifts from these sort of rural, rural idyllic scenes then to scenes of the dictator explaining his policies. And, and a grateful populace, obviously, appreciating it. So it's like probably every possible scene of consuming the proper consumption also of his political speeches, his policies. Okay. There's a little spoken section. Okay. Uh, in the interest of time, I won't make you watch the whole thing, but I do want to show you um, Bunrani's, uh, 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 one of the videos in honor of Bunrani. It's funny because these videos actually kind of resemble real karaoke videos insofar as it looks like a lot of B-roll strung together into a random narrative, right? You know, it's like it's you're singing the Carpenter Superstar and there's you know video of someone in the jungle boat cruise at Disneyland, right? And you're trying to kind of piece the two together. Um, in any case, uh, and you know, that has a lot to do. Oops, let's just go back. It's not going to play again, but that has a lot to do... Um, Actually, the sort of discombobulated narrative of, of karaoke videos has a lot to do with a very special kind of copyright uh, law around uh, copyright legislation around how much or how representative karaoke videos are meant to be since the kind of legality of karaoke music, uh, karaoke discs themselves are also, have also consistently been in flux or in question. But back to Cambodia. <laughs> in the journalist Sebastian Strangio's recent book from Yale University Press, simply titled Hun Sen's Cambodia, Strangio explains that the dictator's karaoke programming is simply an extension of his transmedia control over the nation's outlets, basically rendering censorship unnecessary. Since most of the Khmer language press is, according to Strangio, controlled by interests friendly to the CPP, Hun Sen's ruling party, while the papers meant to serve as a model of so-called press freedom, the Phnom Penh Post and Cambodia Daily uh, have minuscule readerships, might as well be on academia.edu. Um, <laughs> television and radio are the predominant media for urbanites and the agrarian population, and political coverage is funneled largely through these karaoke videos, which also cover, as you see, Hun Sen's major speeches, as well as Bun Rani's ceremonial activities. So karaoke also becomes a form of distributing the news, right? Not just kind of recreational. 
Hunsen instrumentalizes what my colleague Henry Jenkins has described as spreadable media, or at least things that resemble emulative, uh, emulative media like fan videos to propagate state propaganda, uh, excuse me, to, uh, as state propaganda. These cheesy karaoke videos are more than representations or narrative accounts of the state and what it's been up to. They're actually the very performative agents, the texts that do what they purport to be about, and produce, they produce a docile citizenry by capturing their ascent through the earworm by the viewer's capitulation to the melody and to the song. It is the most insidious method of tapping into a folk form, albeit mediated, like the sing-along, which figures like Dorno have always understood as the most dangerously fascist. Considering karaoke's role in coercive pol political practices, and in this context as a tool of the state, um, allows us to really rethink some of the more common and benign conversations about how coercion functions in karaoke as a popular pastime, where its status as a democratic and participatory medium is often taken for granted. And as a karaoke coercer myself, um, you know, I do understand that it's a fine line between winning assent and actually having thoroughly manipulated someone into their docility. Um, and so for the final bit of my paper, the final half of my paper, I want to turn my attention homeward to the Philippines and to a recent political past that continues to live through the storied relationship between Filipinos in the diaspora and karaoke. Ferdinand Marcos became the first president of the Philippines to be reelected in 1969, and this is because we only began electing heads of state after the official bureaucratic end of the U.S. colonial period uh, between 1898 and 1946, though U.S. cultural imperialism is obviously enduring. Within several years of his second term, Marcos declared martial law in 1972 after several incidents of political unrest, including a series of bombings attributed to communist rebels in Manila. <coughs> Marcos, like many dictators who came before him, was praised for his eloquence. In George Caparas's words, his oratorical genius could hold any crowd from any province in thrall. But as many Filipino historians or Philippine historians, cultural critics, and even the casual observer David Byrne, the creator of Here Lies Love, have widely acknowledged, Ferdinand Marcos, aka Ferdi's victories, were owed in no small part to the charisma and songcraft of his wife and life partner in crime, Imelda Marcos, maiden name Romualdez. And so the, the romance was actually, um, you know, another sort of cultural text that, that, that kind of undergirded their dictator, uh, their merged dictatorial regime in the Philippines. Prior to Marcos, Filipino politicians, following in the tradition of their colonial exemplars from the U.S., commissioned original campaign songs in order to win the different offices, like mayor or president of the Philippines. For example, Manila City Mayor Arsenio H. Lacson rode the Afro-Cuban beats of the Lacson Mambo to three successive terms in office in 51, 55, and 59. And I searched everywhere for an audio sample of this, but I couldn't find one. Um, after 1951, when block voting was abolished in the Philippines, there were fewer advantages to having a major party affiliation. So one of the reasons campaign songs uh, became so important was that candidates were left to cultivate their own unique attention-grabbing campaign strategies and initiatives. 
As Caparas explains, this was a time when there was one radio for every 100 Filipinos and television was just being introduced to a mass market. Nevertheless, Filipinos made sure that they were up to date with musical trends from overseas and the mambo had just the right mix of Latin beat and Hollywood flair to capture the attention. Ramon Magsaysay, the former defense minister turned first post-colonial Philippine president in 1953, also had his own Mambo Magsaysay to seduce voters. About a decade later, Marcos eschewed having an original political campaign jingle when he first ran a presidential campaign in 1965. Since, in Capra's words, he had no use for corny melodies when he had his own personal jukebox, his wife Imelda, who would forever be associated with the sappy Tagalog song Dahil Sayo, Because of You, and later the sappier import Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Okay. Um, so throughout Marcus's dictatorial reign, that's the reason that I know this song, is because I was born a year after martial law, and the feelings became another national anthem in the Philippines. Okay. Um, this speaks to Jason, what Jason King was talking about, about the kind of imperial effects of pop uh, globally. Throughout Marcus's dictatorial reign, Imelda infamously wielded her own cultural nationalist power to match, if not exceed, her husband's political power, largely through the karaoke mic or some version of public singing. A vast repertoire of so-called native standards like Dahil Sayo, as well as American pop ballads, rounded out her arsenal. And before David Byrne and Fatboy Slim had their way with Imelda's musical life story in Here Lies Love, her propensity to warble was already par- parodied by the novelist Jessica Hagedorn and Dog Eaters and in the stage pr- production of that. And I want to give you a little excerpt of, um, it's, it's, okay, it's Imelda's singing feelings, but the visuals have been created by a fan, a critic, um, so I'm just going to play a little bit of it for you. I sort of just have to pause. I mean, Imelda's inserted into numerous scenes. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to, you know, get moving here. Oops, where's the last? Huh, okay. I know that there's a video. I hope that that's not... I do really need to show this video. I'm hoping that the slide is there. It's slowly... Oh, okay, that's... Oh man. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm not going to get to show this video because apparently I don't, I didn't put it in the slideshow. But it's a really important one because before, it's per, it's the crux of my argument. And in fact, I think I do have it in here. And I'm gonna. I'm sorry, guys. I'm gonna take a little extra time to show it and to talk about it. Um, just see here. Okay. This is it. Okay. And. 
um, because before the Marcoses made their way to Malacanang, which is the equivalent of the White House, Imelda cut her teeth entertaining American colonial and military luminaries like Douglas MacArthur and Irving Berlin. And I'm going to show this video at length that explains that relationship. One day, apparently, I was out in the garden singing in, in the garden, um, and John MacArthur's house was right next to us, which was the Price residence where he was leaving. And uh, we were across the street. And uh, I do remember that um, he was walking one day and he was looking for someone. Finally, he said, did you hear someone singing here? And um, I said, uh, I was singing, you were singing. And then I said, uh, yes, you can you sing? May I hear? So uh, he discovered it was uh, me. So, so you were the one who was singing. So he ended up to be my talent scout. <laughs> and he said, you can sing. So a few days after, it so happened that General uh, no, Irving Berlin was there. General to, Irving Berlin. Uh, performed before the Eighth Army under General Cooper. He, uh, he uh, called me, General MacArthur called me and said, uh, you know, I have a girl here who can sing. So in front of Irving Berlin, I was made to sing. And of all songs, I had to sing a song, for I, which I sang then, God bless the Philippines, land that I love, stand beside her and guard her, through the night with the light from above, from the mountains, through the prairies, through the ocean wide with foam, God bless the Philippines, my home sweet home, God bless the Philippines, my home sweet home. So poor Irving Berlin said, Imelda, this is for America. And then I said, no, this is for the Philippines. But I composed this, this was for America. I said, but this is for the Philippines. I said, I always knew it was the Philippines. Finally, in exasperation, I said, after he repeated it was for America, I said, but what's the difference? American? <laughs> what's the difference? Okay, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. We can talk about that in the conversation. Um, but I'm going to move on now to the concluding portions of this. In Anglo-American popular culture, we construe the singing dictator or the dictator's wife as a perverse joke, even as we imagine such scenarios with a certain prurience and fantasy, from Evita to springtime for Hitler to Here Lies Love. What we forget is how much power these dictatorial regimes, um, excuse me, uh, these dictatorial figures wielded through fantasy, through conjuring historical echoes about times that never were, or by insinuating oneself into scenes of greatness, which karaoke both enables and helps us to understand. Marcos rejected the idea that a so-called original campaign song could work for him, tacitly acknowledging that originality in the emulative structure of Philippine representative democracy and of, of Philippines in post-colonial uh, exists in, in its post-colonial state couldn't really exist. It could only be the gateway to the kind of absolute power gained from letting his wife speak, nay, sing for him, and do the work of interpreting for him to the Filipino people a repertoire of songs that would, would could, and should eventually belong to them, to us. Uh, and I want to sort of, you know, like gesture to that God bless the Philippines and God bless America are both the same. And this 
I would argue could be read as his most nationalist gesture insofar as it helped crystallize his fantasy of usurpation and absolute power in the guise and comportment of assent and alliance, of the Filipino mastering the master with his tools. There's so much more to say about this in relation to Filipino entertainers, wage, uh, wage musicians and vocalists, and karaoke, karaoke viral video sensations that I can't get into here, especially since I'm already out of time. But I want to think about my presentation of this archive as an opening instead of a conclusion. We can no longer think of karaoke simply as a shorthand for the degraded copy uh, or for copying as an activity. Its power is at once more stunning. Oops, damn it. Okay, I was trying to do that all on the slide, but then, you know, it didn't work. Its, its power is at once more stunning and dangerous than we allow ourselves to imagine. Eventually, the Marcoses were deposed, not only undone by their own hubris, as evinced by the brazen assassination of opposition leader Benigno Ninoy Aquino on a Manila airport tarmac in broad daylight in 1983, but because of the crescendo of another anthem, Nino Aquino's favorite song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree. And um, the image that I wanted to get to, and I shouldn't have started from the beginning, was actually this one. And yellow became the color of people power, right? Um, and the, the yellow is from the sun on the Filipino flag. And it was in direct opposition to the fact that it, Marcos had appropriated the flag's traditional red and blue for his Kilusang Bagong Lipunan, or New Society movement. Aquino's widow, Corazon Aquino, seized the yellow sun to signal a bright new hope for the nation. Through all of it, after the storming of the palace, after the horde of shoes, after Ferdi's death in exile in Hawaii, Imelda could only keep singing the same old songs. And I will, I'm sorry to torture you with one more, um, uh, let's see, play from current slide, with one more tiny excerpt here. And I'm going to cut it off really quickly um, if I get it to play. Okay, well, never mind, I can't. So the drama of that song being sung, um, and it's, it's, she sings a song, and she's in exile in Hawaii, and she's dressed in full butterfly dress, which is the kind of national uh, regalia. <coughs> and she's singing a song about it doesn't matter if, if the suns have set, if you, know, um, you no longer love me, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's it. Thank you. Couple minutes for questions for Karen. Do we have any questions for Karen? Y yes. Uh, I have a, a question. What, what I didn't quite uh, visualize was how um, those songs played at karaoke. Were, were people singing along to those songs in karaoke clubs? Or did, Which songs in particular? The Cambodian well, karaoke? Yeah, people sing along to them. Well, people sing along to them at home, which you know a lot of Asian nations, Asian cultures do do home karaoke, and there are just videos that are playing on TV throughout the day that you're meant to sing along to, you know. So yeah, so um, they do function as karaoke because karaoke doesn't just happen in the context of the bar, which is what we're used to here in the U.S., but it's a feature and uh, of, of everyday life and culture in uh, on the streets, etc. So that's how it is. Yeah. Uh huh. 
They are about, <laughs> they are love songs about fishing, for example, that also have certain elements of the policy uh, promoted in them. So, so because uh, the gist of what uh, Hun Sen's administration wanted to sort of um, imply with that, or like the gist of what they wanted to come across is that we're doing this for the folk, for the people, for the common man. And so it is about a, a romance and a romance of common people in a kind of rural setting of, you know, uh, agricultural, pescatory bliss, whatever. <laughs>